Welcome to our podcast. Before I get started, we know that many of you want to explore our courses, and we want an easy way for you to do that. So we created several complimentary workshops that give you the opportunity to taste our unique brand of experiences. To reserve your spot, visit view.life slash explore, or click the link in the show notes. One of the main reasons I think that we find ourselves attracted to certain people and that we find ourselves married to certain people is that we uh, have a instinctual way of finding the person who can trigger us the best. Welcome to The Art of Accomplishment, where we explore how deepening connection with ourselves and others leads to creating the life we want with enjoyment and ease. I'm Brett Kistler, here today with my co-host, Joe Hudson. Hey, Brett. Hey, Joe. Good to see you, man. Yeah, good morning. So we've been getting a lot of questions from people about relationships, and people are kind of asking, what should they do now? What, how do they tell if they're in the right relationship? How do they know when to dive in and when to pull back? How do they know whether or not they're coming from their feelings or whether they're coming from their trauma? And yeah. We haven't had an episode yet on relationships in particular. And just to be clear, we're talking about romantic relationships. Or are we talking about like all relationships? Yeah. Well, you know what? Let's, let's go into romantic relationships, but it, I think it applies to all relationships. Most of it applies to, to close relationships, I would say. Yeah. You know, maybe not like acquaintances, but most of it will apply to like the bosses that we keep working for or whatever parents. Yeah. Great. Let's do that. Yeah, let's keep it focused on the romantic. Great. Great. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the the context of these closest relationships, including the romantic relationships, involves a lot of spiritual growth, a lot of personal development, a lot of our own our own stuff comes up and it's a container in which we get to experience and recreate a lot of our patterns and work through them. And you know, the the same isn't necessarily true in a lot of work relationships. On some levels it is, but to <laughs> yeah. some extent you know, there's something special about the romantic relationship that more often comes up and people have very specific questions about it. Yeah, I'd say more agreement is on that. It's true that there's more agreement like, oh, we can work on our stuff here together. That there's not, I'm not, I don't need to be a professional that I can actually work on my stuff here. Yeah, great. Let's do it. Relationships. Yeah. What's What's a good starting question here? A good place to start would be sort of to to lay out the the framework of what a romantic relationship actually is and where it comes from, what brings us into them, what attracts us to them, what kinds of relationships we're attracted to. And that's a pretty fractal multi-question right there. Yeah. So it's interesting because you said something earlier about like, am I coming into this relationship out of a healthy thing or am I coming out of into this relationship in the trauma? I would say there that... I don't think that question is relevant, meaning that the people that we're attracted to that we find ourselves in relationships with are people who hook into our particular trauma, our particular projections, our particular patterns perfectly. And so if we have a long-term relationship, you can pretty much be sure that that's those two patterns interlock kind of perfectly. And, and so that's, one of the main reasons I think that we find ourselves attracted to certain people and that we find ourselves married to certain people is that we uh, have a instinctual way of finding the person who, from one perspective, can trigger us the best. And on, on another perspective, I would say, uh, has the biggest opportunity for our healing, mutual healing. And 
So that seems to be why people become attracted to one another is to solve that thing. And and the other way I would put that is if you take a look at like young children, young children get taught what love is in a particular way. Love is associated with shame or love is associated with, you know, authoritarianism or love is associated with money or love is associated with food or, and that creates certain patterns, certain ways in which they're trying to get the love, certain ways in which they're scared of getting the rejection. And however that pattern gets sat in or created, that's where you're going to find somebody in your romantic relationship that holds this, the other side of that pattern. That's why you hear so many people talk about things like, oh my gosh, he's so much, my husband is so much like my father, or my husband is so much like my, my mother, or my wife is so much like my father. It's it's that there's often times we're recreating those patterns so that they can be healed. Or at least that's the opportunity. The opportunity is you get to heal patterns if both people are willing to do the work. Yeah. I, I notice that there's a way of seeing this as a feature or a bug. Yeah. And like, oh, no, I just keep getting into the same relationships. I'm, I just keep dating my mother or my father. And there's something wrong with that. And that makes there's something wrong with me. Or right. what I see you also pointing to is that there's there's an opportunity to heal these things. There's an opportunity to, to feel the feelings that haven't been felt yet. Yes. And this is perhaps one of the distinctions with a romantic relationship as far as consensus agreement versus, say, a boss, is that at least in a romantic relationship, that's the place where culturally we expect to be most accepted as we actually are. Right. That's and right. we have we tend to develop the most interdependence which is not universal or codependence or dependence. Yes. And I, okay. And I would question, but this is for a different podcast. I would question the non-consensuality of a job, but you know, I think that we are all responsible for our own decisions. I mean, the consensual reality of what people agree is the purpose of a romantic relationship versus what people tend to culturally agree is the purpose of a work relationship. That's a great question. Cause I think a lot of people think that the agreement behind a relationship is that we're here to make each other happy. Mm. And I think that's terminal. <laughs> I think that, 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 that kills a relationship. I think my experience is that that not only kills a relationship, but it also allows us to lose ourselves and others. It creates a tremendous amount of pain if we take responsibility for anybody's happiness or give um, our responsibility for our own happiness to anybody in all the subtle and not so subtle ways that that happens. And I think that that's the, particularly in, in societies where romantic love, that crushy feeling in the first three months where you have that crushy feeling and you get that feeling of massive oxytocin and, oh, and then you're like, wait, being with that person makes me feel this way. And then obviously that goes away after about three to five months. And then wait, what's happening? Why aren't they making me happy anymore? And then Everybody starts doing things to try to make the other person happy and has expectations of that. And then that's where all the trauma shows up. So I think if, if you're actually in a relationship where both people are saying, okay, we're here primarily to use a relationship as a way to create our own freedom, to make ourselves happy ourselves and to uh, be kind and supportive to one another, then that's going to be a relationship that's successful. Unfortunately, most relationships, I think, in our society, consciously or subconsciously, are more in the, in the vein of, okay, 
I'm here to make them happy or they're here to make me happy. And that's my job in the relationship. And they're not making me happy, so they need to change. There's a lot of that, like trying to get each other to change in a relationship, which is just yeah brutal. I wonder what it's like to go into a relationship with uh, with the agreement of, you know, this like relationships are meant to make us feel warm and fuzzy for a time so that we build attachment and connection and then push our buttons. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and when my buttons get pushed, that's exactly what I'm here for. And I'm here to heal my own buttons, not yours. Mm-hmm. And I'm here for my own transformation, not for yours. You can see that metaphor play out completely in the sexual relationship too, where if you're having a sexual relationship where it's all about pleasing the other person, it's going to be horrible sex. If it's all about pleasing yourself, that's also going to be horrible sex. But you can't exclude the fact that you're there for your pleasure. They're there for their pleasure. And the only person responsible for your pleasure can be you. There's nobody else who can know what you need or what you want or how to be with you. I mean, you're, you're the authority in that. And it's the same with healing inside of a relationship. Yeah. And with, and with growth. Yeah. Um, I've seen, and I've experienced this before in my relationships where each partner or one partner feels like they are responsible for the other's growth. Yeah. Or in somehow, in some manner guiding it or in some manner more equipped to, (laughs) to facilitate it. And that just stifles (laughs) things immediately. Yeah. Uh, That's, that's hell. That's absolute hell. Yeah. Tara and I definitely went through that phase. It was brutal. Yeah. And full of arrogance and hubris and, and distraction from your own shit and among a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. Right. And so this, this comes back to, you know, in the process of getting into a relationship, there's this possible having this like consent, this agreement that like what relationships are for, how like this desire to have for each of us to, to use the relationship for our own freedom and our own growth. And part of that might even be not requiring the other person to have that same agreement. Just that's just the way that you live individually. And that's the way that you show up in relationships. And I would like that to be true. I don't know if it is. I don't think I've ever really seen any relationship get through the bottoms unless both people have agreed to the fact that they're there for their personal growth. Mm. They might make it as far as they stay, but it's dead inside. You know, they might be married for 50 years, but it's just like brutal and cold and unfulfilling. Yeah. But if I don't know of any relationship, I'm just tracking right now. I, I can't speak to any relationship that I have found that is like healthy and rewarding and fulfilling. And that changes with the, you know, the multiple marriages that we all go through over 20 or 30 years or 40 years that hasn't had the agreement that we are here, like that it's not about changing the other person. It's about our own personal growth and how do we be with ourselves, be better people or not better people's not right, but learn how to be more and more of ourselves. Yeah, and I think that that comes to that brings up a common sticking point that can happen around this work when when somebody discovers a practice like this or discovers any kind of path that is that they're finding really helpful for their healing and for their growth and then they start to feel like their partner is not on board with it and they might be like okay, well, now I need you to agree that we're each in this for our own freedom and you need to be in it. So there can still be sort of a trying to change them to make them the one that 
wants to use the relationship for their freedom and support each other in that. Yeah. And <laughs> also hell. Yeah, absolutely. People, I see that all the time where people start discovering something in themselves and, and I would say out of a deep love and care, they want their partner to join them, but also out of a desire to be happy. Like, oh, if they change, I'll be happy. That's the thing. It's like, if you think that your partner is going to do anything that makes you happy, like if you have the fantasy that, oh, if they become this and this and that, they'll make me happy. It, that's like an absolute illusion. It's not how it works. It it doesn't mean that being with certain people would be more conducive to thriving than other people, right? It doesn't mean that you should be with the partner and just learn how to endure it all. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but we're responsible for our own happiness. Nobody else can take control of that. Nobody else can provide that for us. And the more clear that gets, the more likely you are or I think it's a foregone conclusion, the more you will be in healthy relationships. Let's scroll back a little bit to, to the process of getting into a relationship from this framing, from this perspective of, yeah. you know, relationships are a path to my growth <laughs> and I can, I can use relationships to make myself happy at the same time that my partner is making themselves happy and that we are both co-creators and co-conspirers of our, of our own individual yeah, agency and autonomy and growth and developing a healthy interdependence and not codependence, knowing that we're attracted to relationships that are mirroring our own traumas in some sense or matching them. A lot of people have a question, have a wondering about like, well, how do I know if what I'm getting into is healthy? If I know that if I, if I can just assume that the relationships I'm getting into are based on my trauma patterns, how do I tell if that's going to be healthy or if that's just going to re-traumatize me and re recreate the situation, reprove my my belief system. So let me back up off of that question for a second so that I can answer it more um, precisely. So I have had the really lovely um, experience of several times being with people on their kind of their first date, either being in the booth next to them at a restaurant or showing people who might have interest in one another, like showing up and being with them for the first time that they're meeting. And if you're listening to it the right way, it's like a contract negotiation <laughs> where they're like giving each other pieces of information about each other and they're telling themselves how they're going to act. And so like in both cases where I got to experience this, I got to, from the outside, I got to say, oh, I know exactly how that relationship's going to go. Like you can see the entire thing in the first couple moments. And so first date or two. And there's like all these subtle agreements that are being made subconsciously or not fully consciously. And so just to say that like, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're that wise in it. You know, it's like, we might not be knowing how we're handling like our heart palpitations and our, and our breath and exercise. We're not engineering it, but we're taking care of it. I think the same thing is happening. I have seen the same thing to happen on two occasions, every occasion I've gotten to see it where people are on their first date. So there's this beautiful subconscious intelligence at work. That's the first part of that, which I think is really important. The second part is, am I attracted to this person because of my trauma or am I attracted to this person because it'll be healing both? You're going to re-traumatize yourself in the relation. Every marriage re-traumatizes some of the things that we learned from our early childhood and every relationship has the potential to, or 
not just marriage, but any kind of long-term relationship has the, the chance to heal us from our traumas. Both are their case. The easiest thing to say is if you guys both agree that we're here to work, do the work to find our own freedom, then you're going to get a lot more of the healing and a lot less of the re-traumatizing. If there's no agreement like that and one person's like in full blame mode, full change the other person, full defense mode, then you're going to get a lot more re-traumatization. That, that's just how it is. I think it's a false pretext to say, is this the right person for me that I'm attracted to? The right thought process is, oh, I am attracted to this person. Therefore, they are that they do have that kind of click. They have that thing in them that that attracts a part of me that needs to be healed. Are we going to do that, or are we going to are we going to be you know unconscious in this relationship? I think that's that's the way to tell the difference. Is the person willing to do the work? Yeah, and then then there's the open question of is the lesson for me in this relationship to let more love in and open up and let down my defenses, or is it to draw boundaries and and you know decide what really... i don't see the separation in those two things those are the same thing in my world yeah i, I see that i guess is a more like a common question where it's like that's a common question Yeah, there's definitely something for me <laughs> yeah, to yeah, learn yeah. in this relationship and is the thing for me to learn to dive into it or is the thing for me to learn to walk away from it because i'm having feelings and trying to interpret them right so there's this kind of age-old question in all spiritual growth and this and the way you're posing it right now is kind of the relational version of that question, but the non-relational version of that question is, if I am truly at peace, I should be able to live on top of a disco and be at peace. And if I'm truly at peace, why on earth would I live on top of a disco, right? It's like that, that's kind of like, so do I move or do I stay on top of the disco? That's kind of the question. And, and so the thing that I, disagreed with in the first phrasing and and that I didn't hear in the second phrasing was, you know, do I open my heart and stay open? And the answer to that is always yes. And the question of boundaries is, do I need to draw a boundary so that I can maintain that open heart? And so I can con maintain that unconditional love? Or do I need to look at my own experience to be able to maintain that unconditional love to maintain that open heart. And even that is somewhat of a false dichotomy in the fact that oftentimes it's both. The other part of it that's kind of a false dichotomy is that thinking that the drawing the boundary is more about the other person. Meaning, um, so somebody, for instance, is you got a boyfriend and six months in the boyfriend lies to you. Now there's certain people who would be like, yeah, I'm done. We're finished. There's not even a question. And there's other people who would put up with it because of all these other cool things. But then two years down the line, they're just tired of the line. And so they're like, should I be good with the line or should I draw the boundary with the line? And the truth is drawing the boundary about the line is really a version of learning, oh, I don't have to accept lying in my life. It's internal work more than it is external work. The external saying of it is just a way to affirm the internal realization that oh, I don't have to live with somebody lying to me and it doesn't help me thrive and it doesn't help them thrive. And so in a way it's all internal work. Sometimes it's drawing a boundary and sometimes it's leaving. So there's that false dichotomy between is it my problem or their problem? That's the false dichotomy.
it's always about you being responsible for your own happiness. You know, that's, that speaks to the, the process of, of healing in a relationship and that which leads to showing up in a different way, which leads to, leads to drawing boundaries, leads to opening your heart, leads to yeah. taking actions and being, taking on ways of being that you've never had before and allowing your partner to do, to do that. It's allowing your partner to change into something you've never seen them be before, seen anybody be before in your relationship with you. Yeah. And so that's a continuous process of feeling helplessness and grieving whatever a relationship was, whatever our identity was in relationship. Yes. And I think that that also paradoxically keeps is what keeps the relationship fresh and keeps the spice going. Absolutely. You know, there's like that, the NRE, the new relationship energy that often is considered to die off after a certain period of time. And in my experience, it comes right back every time a relationship goes through a big move and a big healing process and becomes redefined and open and more, more accepting and more aware of more parts of both people. Yeah. I think it's a more grounded version of the new relationship energy every time is my experience, but yeah, it keeps it fresh and alive. And yeah, that's a beautiful way to say it. And, and one of the reasons that relationships in particular are so we take them so personally is because we suffer under the illusion that the other person's actions or reactions are going to affect us more, you know, with, with like an um, inordinate amount of a pressure, so to speak. So meaning, Oh, if he quits his job, then what does it mean for me? Oh, if she, um, you know, becomes a vegan, what does it mean to me, right? Like, And so we're constantly monitoring the person's change on the other side and what it's how it's going to affect our life. More profoundly, we're monitoring what they're doing and how it's going to affect our identity. And also, we're monitoring to see if they're going to hold us in place or not hold us in place, right? So, oh, wow, you're going through something that makes it that you don't want to caretake me anymore, but then who the fuck's going to take care of me? That, uh, because I've created my whole system to create caretakers. You know, I, I've, I've created a system where I feign helplessness and I'm weak and a victim. And therefore, I find people who want to take care of me. So if you stop taking care of me, then I'm going to have to become empowered. But really, I feel that caretaking is love. So now I feel unloved. And, you know, it goes like that. I mean, it's very, you know, we get very scared by what the other person's growth typically. And so there's a lot of pressure. We'll we'll exert a lot of pressure and get very angry over it, um, typically, or or sad or whatever. We'll we'll use every tool in the tool book to try to keep the person in the place where we feel safe. It's interesting to see the pattern where often in, in a relationship where somebody is afraid of being held back or of holding back, they're also the same person is also doing doing the disempowering for themselves and the other, or or bidding for disempowerment. That's right. Totally it is. And the other thing is that like all these fights that we get into in our relationships, they're all you can all you can break them down to pretty much the same basic thing. It's like one person feels unseen and or both so both people feel unseen in that moment or feel unheard, unseen, you know, not grokked, not respected, some version of that. And there's a desire to change the other person. And that's that is like the quintessential part of all fights and that somebody has closed or both people have closed down their heart and said, Oh, I'm not going to be open. 
so every fight can be resolved with one and or both people saying, oh, I'm going to love you unconditionally, even in this situation. Here, let me take the time to see you. Let me make sure that I'm seeing you correctly. Let me sure, make sure that you, I understand what you need to be respected. And I'm not going to try to change you anymore. It's like you flip that switch in a fight, the fight goes away. And yeah. it might take a while to go away. And that's why I said, so most people, in the, when they're in that fight, they do this. They're like, I, yeah, I'm not going to open to my heart until they open their heart. I'm not going to. I'm not going to see them until I'm seen. Like, I'm always the one who's seen them. I'm always the one who's I need like, a partner that does the work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All that version, <laughs> right? As if it's like saying, hey, I'm not going to be free until they're free. Like, what the hell? Like, it makes no sense from this perspective. Like, like, oh, if I drop my needing to be seen, if I drop my closeness, if I lower the armor, that's my freedom. I get that. No matter what the, if the person's yelling, if the person's like, I get that. And my freedom might be to leave. My freedom might be to draw a boundary, but I get my freedom. And why would I care? This is that, that focus, you know, the focus on self, like, and then they have to make their choice. They get to make that choice. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, that's the fascinating piece is just that every one of the fights, I don't care. I've never seen a fight that isn't basically about that in a relationship. Yeah. And then if you do find your freedom, then you're giving your partner an opportunity to love you in your freedom, which will do things for them as well. Yeah. And unless you have somebody with like a severe psychological disorder, when you show up and you listen to them and you unconditionally love them and you hear them, they won't continue to react the same way towards you. They will change. They will, Oh, I feel seen. I feel safe. And then they will show up more loving. They will listen better. They will want to meet you there. Yeah. It might take them 20 minutes, <laughs> but they'll want to. Right. Or or even a few weeks or however much time it takes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, another thing that this points to about this, you know, being in relationships where there's there's an agreement that each is in it for their own freedom and supportive of one another. Yeah. Um there can then become a level of, well, what does that mean? And what are the tools? And I see this be a common thing where somebody gets onto some path of like what works for them. And I've seen this happen with somebody who gets really into psychedelics and then the other partner doesn't, or somebody gets really into, uh, into this work, into view art of accomplishment type work, or somebody who gets into whatever is out there. And then the other partner doesn't necessarily agree that that's their path. And then the argument is not about that we're here for both of our freedom, but the argument is about what path to freedom actually is. And then you're trying to change them. Yeah. I mean, Tara went a completely separate way for a decade. You know, I, I know I've talked on this thing about her making fun of my path and you don't get to control that in another person. But the best approach in that is to learn what their path is. What does happen sometimes is people are like, that's not my path but they're not doing any path. They're not doing any work. You know, that like, like therapy is not my path. That's not my path. I I'm just reading books and, and intellectualizing and that'll be my path. And, but you're not seeing the growth. And so then address that issue. Then the issue is like, Hey, I don't see the, I don't see whatever you're doing being effective. Like, I don't mm-hmm. see you li- living up to your side of the agreement, which is, you know, working on your own freedom. 
and so I, I think that that's more of the the thing I, I, to try to get somebody else to do it. But th- there is a subsection of this. Let's take it out of transformation for a moment, where it's like I am clear that I want to be non-monogamous, and that's what I need to do for you know, or I am clear that I need to try to start a billion dollar company and that's what I need to do. And the other person's like, I am clear. I don't want to be in a non-monogamous relationship or I am clear that I don't want you to have a boyfriend or I'm clear that I don't want to be the wife of a, or husband of a, you know, multinational CEO. There's something in that, which is really fascinating. And I think that that's basic misnomer there is that people think, and those are big ones. We can do small ones too, which is like, I'm clear that like, I don't want to do the dishes and I'm clear that I don't want to live with someone who doesn't do the dishes, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm clear I want to wake up at eight in the morning and meditate with, with my partner or yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm clear that the kids should have a certain schedule. Right, yeah, exactly. And so in that one, what usually be one person compromises or both people compromise. And I'm going to use that word really specifically like to compromise meaning that I am going to neglect some aspect of myself to make you happy. And I highly recommend never doing that. Highly recommend never doing that because that always builds up resentment. There's always now, now you're walking around the house going, I can show these three parts of myself, but not these two parts of myself. Can't say this thing. I got to walk on eggshells, all this other weight and friction comes into the relationship rather than saying, okay, like what we're going to do now is we're going to figure out a way that you get your needs met and I get my needs met. And we're going to be smart enough to do that. And we're going to commit to doing that. And if for whatever reason that can't be done, which in my experience never can't be done, then, okay, then maybe the relationship's not right for us. And let's admit that let's get there. But neither of us are sacrificing. We're both going to get our needs met and we'll find a way to do it. And there's always a way like, okay, we're going to get someone to come in and do the dishes or we can do the dishes at like seven o'clock at night together, or we're using, I would hate to say this, but disposable recyclable and put it all in the compost or what. And there's a thousand solutions to every problem. And if you're not in a power struggle with the person, if you're not trying to get them to change, there's always this solution. Yeah, I think a part of that is seeing seeing the other's needs or the other's stated needs as not threats, but as something that points to a deeper need. That's right. Because then you can kind of climb down the ladder of apparent needs into what's actually needed, which tends to become sort of the same thing: the need for the need for safety, the need for autonomy, the need for connection. Yeah, beautifully seen, and and that is why the job is to constantly keep an open heart, right? Is to not, to not armor up and think you're under attack to see that you can only really be attacked on something that you're thinking is, is bad about yourself. And so like, Oh, I like, I want you to get your needs met. Of course I do. And I want my, me, my needs to get met. And how do we do both is the open hearted approach as compared to, no, I can't, I will not do that. And the crazy thing is, it's like, I see this in, you know, no, I will not have a non-monogamous relationship. If you have that boundary, that's fantastic. I love that boundary. But it's, it is so much different than saying, oh, I really hear that you're sexually unsatisfied in the marriage. 
and I want you to be sexually satisfied in the marriage. And I'm not okay with us having relationships outside or I'm not okay with us not having relationships outside of the marriage as long as we're not connected or whatever the boundary is. Like, it's so much different than I won't do that. Right? I won't do that as this armored defensive than saying, oh, I, I can really acknowledge and see your needs, and I really want you to get your needs met. And, oh, by the way, this scares the fuck out of me because I think we're about to get a divorce because you have a need that I'm not going to be able to fulfill. I hear a, a vulnerability of, okay, these are my needs, these are your needs. There's openness to that this might not actually be a match and that we can't both get them met at the same time. And there's an open-heartedness to really looking for where that correspondence might be yeah. And ultimately, once again, going back to that original principle of each of us is in it for our own freedom and in support of each other's freedom. Yeah. Uh, which means if I have a need, my need doesn't necessarily like my need doesn't need to become a control pattern upon you. Correct. Yeah, that's it. My need becomes something that I inquire into myself and vulnerably share my process in. And it's my responsibility to get that need met. Yeah. And the other part about like this, I think about relationships, like we first talked about like the, like if you think about like standing upright and having your arms out like in a cross, most poetry, most stuff is, most art is written about like the arms of the relationship, the beginning and the end. And we're talking right now about the body of the relationship, which is kind of where most of the self-help books hang out. And the thing about that body of the relationship is it's, if you... I'll tell you in a story, which was working with a client and the client was saying how um, she felt like she was being attacked all the time by her husband. And I was like, yeah, so who gives a shit? And she, I remember her looking at me like, what? And I'm like, yeah, but like, so he's attacking you. If you are different than your authentic self because of an attack, they've won. He's won. You're like the only thing that you have to focus on is being authentic in the face of that attack. Cause otherwise like you're already out of yourself. You've already, you know, like lost, so to speak. So mm -hmm. how do you want to be in the face of this attack? If it's true, even which it, it's most likely not true. <laughs> it's most likely the way it kind of works in relationships is someone thinks they have something to defend. The other person sees that defense as an attack. They think they have something to defend. And then the first person sees that defense as an attack and, both people thinking they're defending themselves and both people feeling attacked. That's typically how it works. And and then creating an attack by doing something like like not being their authentic self right. <laughs> in the face of an attack, which then makes the other partner feel more disconnected, more abandoned. That's right. So it's like, oh yeah, great. They've attacked you. So how do you want to be? And I've never seen somebody deeply get in contact with that and say, okay, yeah, what I want to do is be closed down. They might say that they want to draw a boundary. They might say... Oh, what I want is to, is to say, oh, I don't want to be treated like this or, you know, please stop yelling at me. If you have to keep on yelling at me, then I'm going to leave and I'm happy to come back when you're not yelling at me. Lots of ways to handle it, but I've never heard anybody say authentically what I want to do is I want to like shut down an attack. That'll feel great. <laughs> wow, being defensive feels freaking great. I want to be more defensive with my husband. I've never seen like the marriage that I want is uh 55% more defensive and uh you know like it's just it's not what's right. that's true for us. And so that's the the thing. And and 
and it, it reminds me of this other story. I love this story. It was um, Tara and I saw a therapist uh, years, years back, and and he had this story which I loved, which was he was working with the client, and the client went to the bathroom in the middle of the night and started to pee and missed the toilet. And he noticed a thought. The first thought he had was, "God damn it, she moved the toilet." and in that moment he had this recognition like oh crap i'm totally holding her responsible for everything like none of it's her job and it kind of kind of saw through this whole thing of like he was like blaming his whole life on his wife do you want a life where you're blaming somebody else for your own happiness no nobody wants it and yet here we are finding ourselves in this in the middle of a relationship and just that acknowledgement of this isn't the way that we want to be with each other. This is the way we want to be with each other. That's huge. And so we've, we've talked now about sort of the beginning of the relationship and the kinds of agreements and the kinds of the sort of a consensual reality in the, in a relationship for, for growth and for freedom. We've talked a lot about the body and now what if you do this work and you find, Oh, you know what? This, this relationship has played its course. Yeah. And what we're actually looking for is something different or what I'm looking for is something different or my partner left me and they are shutting down and I feel powerless. And how do I stay connected to them while they're shutting down to me? Before I get there, one of the things I'll just say about the middle of the relationship too, is that one of the things to just look for in a relationship is there's a lot of places where somebody thinks they want something and they has so much craving for it that they're actually pushing it away. That can be like a jealousy. If you find yourself in a relationship where you have the strong desire for something and you keep on trying to get it and you can't get it, then it's really great to acknowledge that you're actually pushing it away, which means subconsciously you're not ready for it, don't want it, haven't admitted what it's going to do to your identity, some version of that. I, I just think that's a really good, like little helpful hint for people who find themselves like, I just want this. I want this so badly and I can't get it here. It's like to know that that energy is actually pushing that away from you, which means that there's some way in which you haven't fully accepted your desire for it and, and willingness to receive it. Yeah. It seems to apply across the, across the board to cravings. Yeah. Yeah. The, the deep cravings. Yeah. So on the end of the relationship, the ending of the relationship is often like the most productive time in a relationship if you're approaching it like this is a a spiritual growth thing. And so what I've seen, the great story I have on this is like, you know, the first time I experienced it, I had a friend who had the love of his life, had been in the longest relationship, which at the time was 11 months or something. He was like perennial bachelor until he was 40 or something. Anyway, he was in this situation and at the time he was overweight, drinking too much, his business was failing and had this breakup, had lost himself quite a bit in the relationship, had this breakup. And we had this conversation about like, Hey, this is a great time if you can mourn it. And so he had this long drive, he was doing restoration work and he had this long drive across Arizona every day and not every day, every week. And he would cry and mourn the whole time there and back. And then, you know, Two months later, it was crying, mourn for a couple hours there and back. And then, and six months later, he wasn't drinking too much. He was in shape. He was, he was running a successful business. He got new contracts. He 
his entire world had changed. And when I asked him about like, how did that work? A couple of things that he said that were exceptional. One is he goes, oh my God, I had no idea I could make sounds like that. You know, when I was mourning, I had no idea. And the other thing was he said, you know, I started by mourning the relationship, but then I mourned everything that got me into the relationship, all the trauma, all the, all the patterns that got me into that relationship. I, I could mourn and move through them and, and that's the opportunity in the end of a relationship is if you fully mourn it, you're not going to replicate the relationship. If you fully allow yourself to feel the sadness and the heartbreak and the hurt, it will increase your capacity to love uh, in the future. And it will mandate a deeper form, a more connected form of love from the next relationship. You'll be attracted to different people. And so there's this huge opportunity in a breakup to allow that mourning to occur and to and to move through all those difficult emotions and embrace them and love them it's like a a gigantic opportunity rather than dismiss it and that includes the person breaking up and the person being broken up with or whatever or even the people around them you know mourning the mourning the identity of the couple and the way that they related to them yeah that's Um, and one of the things that seems to be just a, a, a really common factor when when I see people or in my life after a breakup remain friends or be really close friends or even decide that they actually want to stay together, but just in a completely different form of relationship, the factor there is that they've actually grieved it fully. Yes, that's right. And those who have not done that are the ones who are continuing to hold the bitterness and get into another relationship just like it. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's exactly the pattern that I see in the world. I think the other... And the front end of breaking up with somebody is this moment. Should I break up with them or should I stay with them? It's like that crazy moment that people have. And my response to that is almost always the same, which is, why don't you just be fully who you are? And if it ends, it ends. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Like, it's the same thing I tell people who are thinking about quitting a job. It's like, how, like, there's all these ways that you have stopped being yourself in the relationship. Why don't you just be yourself in the relationship and if it becomes a dumpster fire, it's a dumpster fire. You're done anyways. And if it doesn't become a dumpster fire and it's like something like 70, 80% of the time, the relationship heals just from that, just from people showing up and saying, this is how I want to be, you know, love it or leave it, but I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to be me. And I hope you stay or I hope you don't or whatever it is. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just like, my job is just being me here. And not being defensive about it. And it's incredible how much that changes. Yeah. Yeah. And the inauthenticity is the source of a lot of the pain, all of the pain, really. That's correct. Yeah. And usually the person on the other side is more attracted, more excited, more eager to be involved after, you know, whatever, one to six months of, you know, pushing up against the, the, oh, no, wait, no, wait, this isn't how what we agreed to, you know, that kind of stuff. But it, it's amazing how often that works. And and if it doesn't work, then as far as keeping a relationship alive, it definitely works as far as teaching people how to be themselves in the next relationship. It works as far as creating a more amicable split up and all that stuff. Yeah. And then the final piece I just see to mention here is that it can be a journey to be fully authentic in a relationship. And to hold somebody to being fully authentic in a relationship isn't loving them as they are in their journey. And the same is true for yourself. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that journey ever ends. I hope it doesn't. I hope I continue to find (laughs) ways to be more authentic and, and more 
more supporting of myself and others. I think th- that's the other piece is that I think is really critical is that anything that you can't love about your partner, anything that you want to change about your partner, the most useful thing to know about that stuff is that's something you can't love about yourself. It's something that you have no flexibility in yourself. It's something that you judge yourself for or would judge yourself for that my ability to be patient and loving and caring towards every aspect of Tara is a direct reflection of my capacity to be loving and patient with the aspects of myself period. And so I think that's a really important way to look at it. There's nothing that you're, there's nothing that the other person has in them that you don't have in you. And that there's no way it's like, I really love their this, but I can't love it in myself or vice versa. It's not how it works. Yeah. And it's the people who love themselves who tend to also be the most attractive. Yes. And definitely the most, they create the healthiest relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I've never seen like two people who just like deeply love themselves and, and can accept themselves who, who are like in a just diabolically horrible dysfunctional relationship. Like it just, <laughs> like you just think about it, you can't even imagine it. And so, yeah, exactly. And the other thing to say about that, I think that for some people that's a little scary, like, Oh, I'm going to love myself. There's some fear. If I do that, then, you know, I'll be non-ambitious or I'll be evil or I'll be, there's a, there's a slew of things that look around, see if you can find anybody who truly loves themselves and is, evil or truly loves themselves and is like, you know, non-ambitious, like self-care and all that stuff doesn't go away with self-love. Well, beautiful. I think this is a great place to wrap it up. Yeah, man. That was good. I I could see us having a whole nother podcast on, on relationships. I feel like we could de- delve in deeper. Ooh, you know, it'd be cool. Maybe we do it with you and, um, and Alexa. Yeah. I'd love that. Who interviewed me on that thing. That'd be really cool to have like a three-way conversation that'd be fun yeah let's do that next time okay awesome all right thanks brett all right good to see you you too thanks for listening to the art of accomplishment if you enjoyed what you heard today please subscribe and rate us in your podcast app we'd love your feedback so feel free to send us questions or comments you can reach out to us join our newsletter or check out our courses at artofaccomplishment.com